The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The way they uh, will not be subject to prosecution by China is if they promote um, the interest of the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese government abroad. So uh, networks that traffic in wildlife or that traffic in drugs um, abroad will cultivate local politicians, government officials, and promote uh, Chinese businesses um, broadly. And there is often very strong overlap between uh, Chinese interest in legal economies and networks that also uh, engage in a variety of contraband smuggling. I'm Jacob Schultz. And this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 28th, 2022. In the national security world, including on lawfare, lots of attention gets paid to China's tech sector and other parts of its economy. Comparatively less gets paid to China's illicit economies. Illegal trade involving China and other countries around the world. But China has been involved in numerous acts of transnational criminal activity with occasionally lax enforcement. And there's a new series of Brookings papers and blog posts about this very subject. To talk it through, I sat down with Vonda Felbab-Brown, the director of the Initiative on Non-State Armed Actors and a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings, along with Madiha Afsal, a fellow in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. We talked through the project and through papers that each of them have written on the subject, including one on illegal wildlife trafficking, one on narcotic precursor trafficking, and one on human trafficking. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 28th, China's Illicit Economies. So, Vanda, you can get us started here. So these reports and these papers are part of a broader project at Brookings. Talk to me about what the goal of the project is. The initiative on non-state armed actors that I direct at Brookings explores um, both the role of criminal groups, militant groups, as well as illicit economies uh, around different parts of the world and their connections to state actors, governments that might sponsor them, but also uh, governments that seek to counter them and the policies by which they seek to counter them. So for the past several months, uh, the initiative and Brookings uh, have been running a large project on China's role in various illegal economies, in drug trafficking, wildlife trafficking, and uh, human trafficking. 
And uh, when I say China's role, this really encompasses uh, the role of Chinese criminal groups or Chinese customers, Chinese demand markets, as well as the responses of the Chinese government toward these illicit economies. What kind of actions uh, the government of China takes to mitigate them, how it chooses to cooperate or not cooperate uh, with uh, law enforcement agencies in other countries, in the United States, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in Mexico. So in the last few uh, weeks, we have been conducting fieldwork research um, for the reports and blogs that are coming out. Uh, There will be ultimately five large reports and a a brief and uh, several blogs. The first two uh, blogs are coming out uh, this month in February, as is uh, Madiha's brief about which she will be talking about. Then a large report on China's role in wildlife trafficking in Mexico and China's role in synthetic drug smuggling Uh, around the world is coming out in March. And then later on in the summer, there will be still three other large reports on China's role in wildlife trafficking in Africa, in Southeast Asia, and how China chose uh, and how China did to uh, enforce two sets of important environmental regulations. It's ban on ivory trafficking, and very importantly, uh, it's ban on the consumption of wild animal meat as a way to prevent a zoonotic disease emergence like COVID. So, you know, Brookings Fellows are, are busy people. Talk to me a bit about the, the value of focusing on this topic, right? Why is this an important thing to sort of center resources on and think about as a more holistic problem as opposed to a set of discrete issues? Well, there are several reasons. I mean, a lot of the illicit economies that uh, we are looking at, that we have picked to studies, have vast uh, consequences. Synthetic drugs, uh, many of which originate in one way or another in China, uh, have caused in the United States the deadliest drug epidemic in U.S. history, uh, killing um, several hundred thousand people since the late 1990s. And a lot of the deaths really escalated since about 2012, 2013, when synthetic drugs, synthetic opioids originating in China um, have started flooding the U.S. market. And since then, uh, these synthetic uh, opioids and other synthetic drugs that either directly originate in China or precursor chemicals for them originate in China have been sweeping uh, drug markets around the world. We are really in the midst of a significant revolution in uh, global drug markets and one that is unfortunately catastrophically deadly. Just In uh, last year, more than 100,000 Americans uh, died from drug overdose, yet another record year, the vast majority of them uh, as a result of synthetic opioids that are also mixed into cocaine uh, and other drugs. With respect to wildlife trafficking, China is one of the uh, top consumers of various products of wildlife. And uh, that has devastating consequences for global biodiversity, for the preservation of species, but also for public health, because zoonotic diseases originate uh, both through the legal and illegal trade in wildlife, as well as through uh, the destruction of natural wild places, such as uh, through habitat conservation. And of course, 
Uh, China has a significant role in uh, the trafficking of people, as you will hear um, from Madiha, a very uh, brutal and significant illegal economy in the impact on human rights. And finally, of course, China is a very important country. It is a peer rival of the United States. Increasingly, China and the U.S. are caught up in a very tense uh, rivalry that, in fact, can be characterized as the beginning of a new Cold War, or maybe more than beginning at this point. And uh, consequently, how China chooses or refuses to cooperate in countering these illicit economies in which Chinese actors, Chinese consumers, Chinese criminal groups are deeply intertwined, has profound effects on the ability to mitigate them. So with that in mind, let's dive a bit into the respective reports and briefs. So I want to start with your, your report on Chinese wildlife trafficking. So describe the wildlife trafficking problem as you articulated in your report. You gave a bit of a sort of a teaser to it in your previous answer, but I wonder if you could go into a bit more depth and maybe even just as a, a sort of history of, of what the problem has looked like over the years. Well, over the past uh, three decades, really, uh, the problem of poaching and wildlife trafficking has escalated to levels that we have historically not seen. And a crucial reason is the uh, emergence of Chinese demand markets as a result of the uh, economic growth in China and the ability of Chinese customers, Chinese people, Chinese speculators and, and businesses uh, to uh, be buying wildlife from all around the world. In the initial uh, emergence of uh, this immense demand and this devouring demand for wildlife product in China, the focus on uh, animals that were feeding a whole variety of uses in China, such as very destructively so-called traditional Chinese medicine or desire to eat wild animal meat, was centering on Asia, on countries that were close to China. Later on, it spread to Africa. And in recent years, it's been spreading to Latin America. So uh, as part of uh, the work, I am looking at uh, the impacts of two sets of Chinese regulations on wildlife trafficking, poaching, and enforcement policies in different places, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in China itself. And in the first report that's coming out in March, I look at uh, the emergence of poaching and smuggling uh, in Mexico for Chinese markets. And the reason that we decided to uh, launch this set of wildlife trafficking reports with Mexico is because that's where the Chinese uh, element of poaching and wildlife trafficking is least known. But it's not the sole reason. There is another significant dimension. And that is that in the case of Mexico, where powerful and highly violent organized crime groups that are known popular as the cartels, the Sinaloa cartel, the cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, operate and dominate territories, people, uh, and economies, there is an actual strong overlap and intersection between these drug trafficking cartels poaching and wildlife trafficking that heads into China, and uh, money laundering. And what is really happening in the big story uh, that I break and discuss in the report is now the fact that Mexican uh, criminal groups 
are paying for precursor chemicals that they buy to produce synthetic drugs like fentanyl, a synthetic opioid, and methamphetamine uh, with wildlife products. Now, the value uh, that uh, they have to pay to Chinese traders that sell these precursor chemicals, legally or illegally, is quite the value of that of the payment they owe is, is very large. And the, the wildlife barter payments uh, cannot pay for all the money they owe for these precursor chemicals. However, even paying, say, 20% of uh, that debt uh, now has led to a vast desire to illegally harvest terrestrial species uh, in Mexico, uh, marine species, timber products such as hardwoods, and Mexico is really under this tremendous pressure of its biodiversity being threatened to satisfy Chinese markets and to be used as payment for the precursor uh, chemicals. So there is this significant overlap between money laundering, drug trafficking, wildlife trafficking, poaching, and criminal actors in China and in Mexico. There's so much to unpack there, but I'm wondering just how it came to be that all these different spheres of illegal economies sort of converged upon each other. Do you have a sense of how it came to be that wildlife trafficking became so linked to the the drug precursor market? Is that something that happened by virtue of there there being a a lack of other transactional alternatives because it's it's hard to find a market for the wildlife At the core of the reason why there is this nexus and and convergence between several sets of illegal economies is the role of the Mexican criminal groups and their power. You know, I wrote a whole book on wildlife trafficking uh, called The Extinction Market and have been dealing with how to counter wildlife trafficking and poaching for many years prior. And often there is a claim, there are suggestions that this intersection between various illegal economies happens. The reality is often complicated and oftentimes the claim is in fact not correct. But in the case of Mexico, it has happened. And the reason that it has happened is because the Mexican criminal groups have become so powerful that they control vast territories, even if they don't fly their own flag and declare the the territory of the Sinaloa cartel In practice, they intimidate, influence, dominate politicians, government officials. They deeply interfere in elections. They control the behavior of populations, in addition to engaging in warfare with rival groups. But they also have come to dominate many legal and illegal economies. And uh, that has really put them in the position of, on the one hand, needing to buy precursor chemicals from China for the production of synthetic drugs, and at the same time having the capacity to be paying with uh, anything the Chinese market would desire, and hence, in this case, plant and animal products. And I'm wondering if you talk a bit about your field research during this. So this is a Brookings report, but it's, it's a Brookings, the two reports, both the report on wildlife trafficking and on precursor chemicals for for drugs involved you doing some pretty significant fieldwork. Talk a bit about your experience doing that. 
No, yes, um, thanks. Um, you know, I, I love doing field work. It's sort of a hallmark of my scholarship, and I've been lucky to be able to do it um, in various parts of the world. And so this was at the begin- from the beginning um, a key element of how I conceived of the project, including because um, very little um, has actually been written about, for example, the role of China in any of Mexico's illegal economies or about how China interacts with governments in Southeast Asia or Australia regarding synthetic drugs. Now, unfortunately, uh, COVID has had its own plans uh, with respect to fieldwork. So I ended up going to Mexico and spent October and November in Mexico interviewing all kinds of actors there, from people involved in the criminal economies to people having to live underneath the, uh, the thumb uh, of the narcos, to poachers, traffickers, uh, government officials, and, and traveled various parts of Mexico um, for that um, fieldwork, really um, also discover or, or was able to unpack another very significant uh, dimension, which is that the criminal groups uh, in Mexico are systematically uh, attempting to take over not just illegal fisheries, which had been known, but really legal fisheries. So much so that entire chain of uh, actors from fishers themselves through processing plants to exporters uh, really are now controlled and dominating by the criminal groups, particularly the Sinaloa cartel and to extent cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. And doing that fieldwork was very difficult and very challenging. People are very afraid of the criminals. Some of the areas I went to really exist under the narco rule. And it was you know, figuring out at what hour can we enter, uh, at what hour we need to leave, um, myself and my, my driver, looking over uh, the shoulder, uh, any kind of interlocutor, are we being followed? So it required very, very significant um, security consideration and operational security to pull it off. And and, and people were very um, scared to speak. So great deal of effort really had to be to uh, ensure that uh, the interlocutors uh, would in no way be identifiable so they don't suffer retribution um, from the criminal groups or, for that matter, from corrupt government officials. I ended up also doing a lot of interviews with uh, actors in um, Southeast Asia, of Asia, the Pacific region, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, in various parts of Africa, and uh, in uh, China itself. And that had its own challenges. Um, unfortunately, I had to ended up doing that through virtual platforms because of covid and restrictions on access, um, I was not able to travel there. Uh, but there again, the challenge was real fear that the government of China would uh, act against people uh, who would be willing to do, give those interviews. So um, being very mindful that no identifiers uh, would be in the report. And I've done a lot of field work and I have written a lot of reports from field work and I felt that I had never to be as vague about identifying my interlocutors as in the China report because of the fear uh, that people had and that I really had to promise that um, they would not be exposed so they don't suffer denial of visa or arrests, imprisonment, other consequences. And and final comment I would make, I've, I've been to China various times and had both the pleasure of 
uh, engaging in uh, track two, track 1.5 with um, Chinese interlocutors on various issues, including on wildlife trafficking, and, and also had conducted research there. But uh, what really was palpable uh, is in this new geopolitical relationship, in the tense mood between the two countries, how much access had uh, shrunk, how enormously afraid and concerned China-based interlocutors were, um, including because um, there is a, a regulation now that any kind of interview with even Western researchers, American researchers, would need to be approved by uh, government officials. And that experience was not unique uh, to me. I heard it from foreign diplomats, foreign law enforcement officials, just how much visibility into what's going on in China has shrunk and how channels of communications uh, have really weakened uh, between the United States, uh, the West and China. I mean, to the point that it kind of reminded me of uh, you know, the gone era of uh, Cold War between the United States and Soviet Union and how very lim- and, and the Soviet uh, Union satellite space and how very limited the possibilities for even conversation, for seeing what was happening in the socialist bloc was. And in both the reports, both the report about the wildlife and the report about the precursor trafficking, you, you flesh out sort of the downsides, like what are the, the harms of, of both these things? If you could just give a brief rehash of what those are, talk to us about what is, you know, what's at stake here? Like what's the, what's the downside risk of these types of illegal economies? At the end of the day, at stakes are people's lives and really an amazing number of people's lives. So in the case of synthetic opioids, We are talking about death rates in the United States of tens of thousands of people, 100,000 people per year. And synthetic opioids have spread uh, rapidly into Canada. They are spreading in uh, Mexico. We are now seeing them uh, spread uh, as far south as Argentina. So many more countries around the world are going to be grappling with potentially massive challenges to public health and uh, significant death rates. With respect to uh, wildlife trafficking, on the one hand, we are, of course, seeing a massive impact on the loss of biodiversity and natural habitats through illegal logging, through illegal um, fishing and wildlife trafficking and poaching. But we also have people's lives at stake because of the role of zoonotic diseases that originate through habitat destruction and through wildlife trafficking zoonotic diseases being diseases that originate in animals and then jump to humans, a viral jump to humans, like COVID-19. So let's just recap where we are the third year into COVID. Uh, We have had um, 5.7 million people die of COVID. uh, And this is in an era where we have vaccines and where we have medications. If we think of the comparative 1918 flu, We had about 16 million people die without uh, anywhere the level of knowledge of uh, medicine and um, viruses that we have today. So 5.6 million people have died so far. It's an immense number. We have also seen catastrophic devastations of global economies with countries uh, in the southern cone in Latin America uh, seeing losses of GDP of 10% similar numbers in places like uh, India or Indonesia. 
and of course, massive impact, particularly on the poorest and most marginalized from COVID, a zoonotic disease, with some 300 million people pushed in the f- just the first 30 plus weeks of COVID from lower middle class or middle class into poverty. And they will probably in their lifetime not be able to come back. So zoonotic diseases linked to destruction of habitats through illegal behavior as a, and unsustainable behavior through poaching and wildlife trafficking have massive economic, social, public health death impacts on a scale that uh, surpasses what many a regional war would actually uh, do. You mentioning the human impact of this, I think, is a great segue to talking about Madiha, your your work and your your paper that you prepared. So, if you could describe, you know, in a, in a few minutes, what the the topic that you focused on was and and how it ended up coming across your radar screen. Absolutely, yes. So, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote uh, a paper for part of our Global China project uh, in the Foreign Policy Program uh, at Brookings on uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is sort of the flagship of the Belt and Road Initiative that basically is, you know, billions, tens of billions of dollars of investments that China has made in Pakistan. So I wrote about that, and in particular, the role of both the Chinese and Pakistani states in controlling the narrative surrounding the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So that paper was titled at all costs, because uh, they had basically said, look, we're going to control the narrative, and this is a quote, at all costs on the China-Pakistan economic corridor. And there were various aspects of how the narrative was controlled, including, you know, what kinds of projects were happening, including sort of the the media uh, coverage of the the China-Pakistan economic corridor, and so on. And one aspect was sort of the narrative around uh, and the the media uh, attention around bride trafficking that had started occurring in Pakistan around this China-Pakistan economic corridor. So I'd written about it, uh, you know, um, with respect to that, and I'm going to go into what what it actually entails. But that's when it came across my radar screen, and I wanted to look into it more. You know, sort of. When did it start? What was the response of uh, the Chinese and Pakistani governments sort of in more detail? Uh, you know, is it still continuing? Uh, what kind of impact is it having? And then more broadly, is this a practice that is isolated to Pakistan? And, you know, what does this tell us about thinking about, you know, places that China makes economic investments, for instance, Pakistan, but all across the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, the impact that, you know, illegal activity around that Belt and Road Initiative, of which bride trafficking is one example, can have, and how the relationship that the country that is receiving, let's say, the economic investment, in this case, Pakistan, how the relationship with China impacts the country's response to this kind of illegal activity. So sort of a broader question around, you know, how how do countries respond to, uh, you know, sort of uh, perhaps the undesirable externalities of uh, Chinese role and involvement and investment uh, in their countries. So that's the the, the broad topic and, and the way I went into it. Um, and then I can describe, uh, if you'd like, uh, a little bit of, you know, what the, the, the major issue at stake is. Yeah, that'd be great. And maybe even describe you reference in 
in your paper a couple of big, you know, news story exposés, maybe using those as a segue to, to get into the issue at stake. Yes, absolutely. So essentially, you know, this the issue of Chinese workers who had been coming into Pakistan around the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And as I mentioned, this is a $62 billion set of investments uh, that China is undertaking in Pakistan starting 2015. And it really centers around infrastructure development, but is not limited to infrastructure development. There, there were Chinese workers that had begun coming to Pakistan, in particular, you know, uh, many hundreds of them uh, by 2018. And there was there were, there were sort of anecdotal uh, evidence and, and rumors of uh, Chinese workers marrying Pakistani brides. But in April of 2019, uh, there was a major expose where a Pakistani news channel raided a compound in Lahore with cameras in tow. So this was a televised raid and they found several Chinese men with uh, six Pakistanis four women and two, you know, underage girls, two teenage girls whom they claimed to have married. And one of the women had actually contacted the TV network. And uh, this really pointed to sort of the work of illegal marriage bureaus in Pakistan that had arranged the marriages for a fee. So these uh, men had given money to the families of these women and, and girls. And it seemed that they were targeting really poor and vulnerable households who would benefit from having this money uh, and marginalized communities in Pakistan, the Christian community in particular. And so the victims' families had basically been given money and promised additional amounts to have uh, be, be given to them monthly. This basically uh, began sort of a cascade of revelations that were coming out in the media that Pakistan's federal investigations agency was then involved in, where this what emerged was that, you know, these marriages that were occurring with, you know, with money given and promises of more money coming to the bride's families were really cases of trafficking because these girls and women were then taken to China and uh, there was evidence that they were a either forced into prostitution or forced labor, or, you know, basically forcefully impregnated. The Federal Investigations Agency became very, very involved in this. Uh, it, it turned out that there were, you know, Pakistani and Chinese, um, you know, nationals involved, that they were, as I said, particularly targeting the Christian community, targeting Christian neighborhoods, and this is a very small minority in Pakistan, but it was not limited just to, to Christian neighborhoods. And they um, were also working through um, priests uh, in, in churches to try to gain access to these communities. And there were cases uh, that were sort of laid out uh, against traffickers, you know, uh, more than 50 Chinese traffickers, they were arrested publicly. Then there were uh, you know, the, some of the women were brought back to their families. The Associated Press did a big, big investigation on this. The New York Times interviewed uh, some of the trafficked women. So this had a huge amount of attention in, in 2019. Uh, and it came out uh, later that year that six, there was a list of 629 trafficked women that had been put together. You know, activists working with these communities estimated that the numbers could be higher. But at the same time, uh, as this sort of list uh, and this, this number came out, what emerged was that both the, the cases 
after all of this attention that had been paid to them uh, were, were shut down, you know, the traffickers were essentially released, and that the media was asked to not uh, report on these stories. Uh, so basically, you know, almost as quickly and, and as intensely as the flurry of reporting began on this, uh, and uh, as much sort of intense attention as there was on this, it, it appeared to have been brushed under the rug. So this paper is sort of a story of, of both of those things and the wider implications of that. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So that last point you raised about the media being being asked to not report on it is a good segue, I think, to take a step back and think about the broader picture of what's going on here in both of the, the sort of cases that, that you studied, both in Mexico and, and in Pakistan. So I'm curious, Vanda, maybe you can get us started here. What's your sense of how the Mexican government sort of handles the delicate balance between you know, trying to enforce criminal wrongdoing while also you know balancing whatever economic pressure, pressure in other channels that China might exert over it? Well, uh, a key problem in Mexico, quite apart from China, is uh, a very poor um, rule of law with extraordinarily high rates of impunity, even for the worst crimes. Like homicides have 98, 96% impunity rate. So essentially, if someone decides to commit murder, he or she will get away with it. And uh, in its relationship with uh, China, the Mexican government has had uh, a more delicate balance uh, really in uh, both um, trying to maintain positive economic relationship with China, while at the same time seeing China as uh, an economic rival, as a competitor in displacing uh, Mexican companies, Mexican labor uh, from U.S. markets. So the, the difficult balancing has been within the economic relationship. But in the context of that, the Mexican government has historically really not uh, gone into issues that would rock the relationship, has not focused on human rights abuses uh, committed in China, for example, nor has really dealt very much at all with China on a whole wide set of criminal issues, whether it's drug trafficking or wildlife trafficking. Only in very recent years, uh, there have been uh, attempts to engage China on that. But the engagement uh, between China and Mexico still is very limited, very sporadic, case by case, and really inadequate. uh, and cannot be called in any kind of form meaningful cooperation. 
in many ways, uh, China's engagement in law enforcement matters has grown more in Southeast Asia, where China is very uh, intent on cultivating uh, positive relations uh, in Southeast Asia as part of the projection of its uh, geopolitical ambition, and where it has now come to understand that law enforcement cooperation is yet another mechanism of this projection of power. Uh, And similarly, uh, that is also starting to take place in Africa. But on the one hand, uh, China is the principal demand place for products from animals that are poached, killed in Africa. But at the same time, China is uh, using cooperation against wildlife trafficking and poaching also as a mechanism of um, projecting power and of building its presence in Africa. Nonetheless, China's um, international cooperation tends to be uh, highly selective, highly self-serving, often really focused and preoccupied with a very narrow set of issues that concern China, such as the extradition of Chinese nationals that the government wants, for, for example, capital flight violations. Uh, it tends to be very reluctant to engage in meaningful cooperation on issues such as uh, money laundering, whether this pertains to wildlife trafficking or drug trafficking, including because it doesn't want to expose the massive problems and deficiencies uh, within the financial and banking system in China. And even on synthetic drugs that originate in China in the form of precursors, but head throughout the Asia-Pacific region, namely methamphetamine, China is really only very slowly coming to cooperate uh, with regional actors, with countries like Thailand. And to the extent that it cooperates, it's principally in sharing information on seizures. It's not been very active in uh, trying to help dismantle Chinese criminal networks operating abroad unless they cross the interests of the Chinese Communist parties. But very frequently, Chinese criminal networks, from the notorious triads to much more mom-and-pop kind of industries, understand that the way they uh, will not be subject to prosecution by China is if they promote um, the interest of the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese government abroad. So uh, networks that traffic in wildlife or that traffic in drugs um, abroad will cultivate local politicians, government officials, and promote uh, Chinese businesses um, broadly. And there is often very strong overlap between uh, Chinese interest in legal economies and networks that also uh, engage in variety of contraband smuggling. The same is also the case in Mexico. And often uh, the Chinese government is really very keen and very determined to control narratives, something that also came up in the issue of uh, uh, human trafficking, bright trafficking from Pakistan that uh, Madiha was just uh, talking about. That same effort to control the narrative, to uh, often uh, try to have very strong presence, if not outright control over regional bodies that deal with law enforcement cooperations to dominate agenda, to come very prepared to those meetings is kind of very much part of the modus operandi of uh, the Chinese government. While at the same time, the actual operational uh, cooperation tends to be limited uh, case by case, um, highly highly selective and often 
uh, highly self-serving, uh, not uh, fully equitable sharing of information, not uh, equal determination to go after all trafficking networks uh, or criminal organizations. And Medeha, in your research for this project, how did you find that the the Pakistani government was trying to balance those sort of various equities as they relate to China? Yeah, so I think the Pakistani government really had two big in- imperatives here that that bumped up against each other. One was to its domestic audience, right, to to its own citizenry. And really the issue of marriage and a woman's honor is of huge significance in Pakistan, right? So this is something that um, in Pakistani culture uh, and, and sort of religion, there is the sense that, you know, men and society at large is responsible for um, for protecting the honor of women. And the issue of, you know, trafficking and then prostitution, forced impregnation, uh, and so on really brought out uh, sensitivities in, in Pakistan, which is why this issue received so much attention this summer of, of 2019. You know, one, one caveat I should note there is that the in Pakistan, the Christian community tends to be marginalized. And so that's one reason in some ways this has been allowed to be brushed under the rug by Pakistan citizenry is perhaps because of that. But, you know, the imperative, again, of society at large controlling and protecting the honor of women is why there was so much attention on this topic. But the other imperative was for Pakistan to protect its relationship with China, and in particular, its economic relationship with China, in which, you know, the the power dynamic is clearly uh, one in which, you know, uh, China has the upper hand because China is the country making the investments to Pakistan, which is sort of dependent in many ways on these investments. And so in order to protect these investments, you know, what to what lengths was Pakistan willing to go? And we saw that, you know, brushing this story under the rug, you know, ending these investigations, even going to the lengths of transferring officials who were working on these investigations, so much so that one official who had knowledge of this, you know, uh, even in an anonymous interview with the Associated Press, went hundreds of kilometers away from where he worked to interview for this, you know, off the record, right? Uh, so that gives you a sense of how sensitive this issue had become after so much attention being on it by the end of uh, 2019. And, and you know, there's no question that this has stopped, right? The practice continues, um, you know, the official said as much, you know, I think we know that in, in the pandemic, cases of trafficking have only increased because many of the vulnerabilities that the pandemic has exposed, including economic vulnerabilities, are the, exactly the kind that traffickers tend to exploit. So we can assume as much, but we don't know anything more just because now there's no, you know, by explicit design media attention on this. So in, in the case of Pakistan, these two imperatives, you know, sort of the, the one to its citizenry and the, the one to protect uh, you know, the relationship with China, but also to protect Chinese sort of investments coming into uh, into Pakistan and sort of, you know, protect that economic relationship. That second imperative won out. What we can say is that this has negative consequences in terms of the attention being on this issue 
if there is no attention on this issue, you know, the, the practice can continue. And, you know, just to take a quick step back, this is not happening in Pakistan alone. So um, this is happening in various neighboring countries to China just because it's easier to traffic uh, from, uh, you know, over overland uh, with neighboring countries. So Myanmar, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, North Korea, and Human Rights Watch has documented this. And the roots of this really are um, around the huge demographic gap in China, where there are basically tens of millions of excess men um, because of China's one-child policy and the practices of female infanticide and forced abortions um, that follow China's one-child policy. And these men, essentially, now that they're of marriageable age, need women to marry. And so that's why they've reached into illegal trafficking networks. But the Chinese government's you know, attempt to control the narrative around this is noteworthy because in Pakistan, for instance, you know, when there was media attention on this, the Chinese embassy issued a statement basically saying both Chinese nationals and Pakistani nationals are victims of this, these illegal matchmaking uh, centers, you know, uh, basically saying, look, we hope that uh, the public do not believe in misleading information and work together to safeguard the China-Pakistan friendship. And that's a quote directly from the Chinese embassy. So, you know, basically saying don't believe in all the all the negative sort of stories you hear. Uh, and then the Chinese ambassador, when more um, reporting came out, the Chinese ambassador went on Pakistani TV and said, you know, there is no prostitution as part of this. So, you know, also pushed back on the reporting. And if we look actually at the other countries in which this has occurred, there perhaps hasn't been that much overt media attention to this in the other countries, largely because the victims have belonged to marginalized communities. So the government has not taken up the case as much. There might also be cultural issues where this is not as sensitive an issue as it is in Pakistan. So there hasn't been a huge flurry of media attention, but there hasn't also been an attempt to clamp down on any reporting on this. So, for instance, Human Rights Watch was able to conduct a huge investigation in Myanmar and there have been others in other countries. So there's there's a lot of um uh, you know, sort of firsthand accounts and a lot of light shed on this topic in other countries. But in Pakistan, while there was that initial, as I said, you know, media flurry that I've reported, that I've uh, spoken about a number of times, the brushing it under the rug actually has had a perverse effect where now, you know, essentially no one's covering this, not even Amnesty at this point, not even uh, Human Rights Watch at this point, you know, for the last couple of years. It, it points to both the extreme, obviously, benefits of, of media attention and then how those those can backfire if it's controlled by by the state. So, Madiha, you're, you know, the way that you presented the the way that this problem emerged is raises an interesting question, I think, of how much of this has to do with particularly bad behavior, you know, turning a blind eye, suppressing, et cetera, et cetera, from the Chinese government, and how much of it just has to do with the fact that in the past, you know, half century, China has emerged as a major player in the international economy. And as you become further enmeshed in the international economy, there are illicit economies that emerge alongside it. How much of this in, you know, in the course of doing the research into your project here seems like it's a result of particular negligence on behalf of the Chinese government? And how much of it is just, you know, 
feels like a natural consequence, albeit a really deeply unfortunate one, of China becoming such a major player on the international economic stage? Yeah, that's a great question, Jacob. So in my view, in, in some ways, because the roots are that that demographic problem, right? And this is something that basically emerged as China's role in Pakistan, uh, and in particular, the economic role in Pakistan increased uh, very naturally, uh, you know, as Chinese workers came in. Um, these are sort of uh, illegal activities that developed, you know, as ec- you know, negative externalities essentially around the China-Pakistan economic corridor. In my view, you know, I think this is, you know, these are private citizens that are engaging in this illegal activity as part of the larger, of course, China-Pakistan economic corridor and their work there. And some of them actually um, had faked, for instance, uh, you know, the projects that they were working on. So really, weren't even uh, technically directly part of the the China-Pakistan economic corridor. The activity is a natural sort of perhaps an organic occurrence. The the problem is the stamping down of the coverage and the transparency and the investigations into that activity. So, you know, in in my view, right, the, the right policy response is to say, you know, as the Pakistani government did conduct investigations on this arrest traffickers, and then to carry that forward into its logical conclusion so that it acts as a deterrent to future traffickers. That is what was shut down, and that is what did not occur, and that is the problem. Obviously, the the trafficking is a problem, and it's unfortunate, but it it perhaps was unavoidable as as part of this expansion uh, in the economic relationship between the two countries. But what was avoidable was the the shutting down of uh, the the investigations, the shutting down of the media attention, and and the future trafficking that now is occurring can then be traced back as a consequence of attention being shut down. And again, you know, this is presumed future trafficking because we are not hearing anything about this because there's no, the media is not allowed to report on this. But uh, a much more natural approach would be uh, to prosecute this and 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 let it reach its, its conclusion so that then these uh, illegal activities don't actually thrive in this environment so that they know that there is sort of a, a limit to them. And so we have to wrap up in a bit here, but Vonda, I think to close out, maybe the, the best place to go is to talk a bit about policy solutions. So obviously, each of the separate papers and reports in this series has a different set of discrete policy solutions that would fit, you know, based on the specific circumstances. But could you talk a bit about what you see as sort of the most effective policy fixes here, whether it's from a U.S. perspective or from an international institution's perspective, what did you see in the course of reporting out these papers and doing all this research as the most fruitful avenues? The answer really depends both on locality and on uh, the particular illegal economy in Jacob. But broadly, it does entail both thinking about how to suppress and shape supply to the extent that's possible, And in the case of synthetic drugs and precursor chemicals for synthetic drugs, it's uh, very difficult, in fact, to do so. Uh, How to dismantle criminal networks, not because new criminal networks will not arise, they will, but because one wants to also moderate the many deleterious effects they have on people and on governments. And how to reduce demand. 
And so working across the spectrum of supply to demand requires, to a great extent, international cooperation. Now, when you ask Madiha the question uh, about is uh, there a behavior on the part of the Chinese government that's problematic or is the effects of China, for example, in bribe trafficking, the consequence of policies that have been taken and the rise of China's economy, that same question also applies to all the other illegal economy. And the answer is it's both. Yes, there are structural effects that are inevitable consequences of the increase in purchasing power parity by Chinese citizens, for example. But China's willingness to acknowledge the problems, its responsibility, and to cooperate uh, with other countries, particularly countries that are its uh, geopolitical rivals, uh, is limited and it's insufficient and inadequate. That doesn't mean that if there were perfect 100% cooperation between the United States and China, uh, our consumption of synthetic opioids would disappear and we would have no more opioid use disorder uh, and no more deaths. But dealing with many dimensions uh, of it would be much uh, simpler. Similarly, with wildlife trafficking, good international cooperation will not eliminate those illegal economies but nonetheless can make tremendous difference in making them much less harmful, uh, much less destructive. And we are not in that stage with China. The United States is one of the largest demand markets for wildlife. A lot of uh, animals that are poached end up being trafficked to the United States. But the United States also is a country that devotes more law enforcement resources in the United States and abroad in international cooperation to countering that than any other country in the world. Whereas what we often see with, with the government of China is denial of its role and its, of China's role and China's responsibility, very limited, very self-serving and inadequate willingness to enforce even its own regulations and high selectivity in how it uh, approaches uh, law enforcement cooperation. And the final word that I would say on this is when I was last in China in October and November 2018, there was considerable hope as the Cold War between the two countries was really unwinding, was really starting, uh, was developing, and relations on many issues have, have crashed that law enforcement cooperation against drug trafficking and law enforcement cooperation against wildlife trafficking were the two last areas where meaningful cooperation was possible and the two areas where that cooperation could be used as a springboard for easing uh, the geopolitical tensions. And so what I saw in my work for this project three years later uh, is really that this hope um, has not materialized. And I'm, in fact, rather skeptical that we will be seeing uh, law enforcement cooperation to ease into better geopolitics. Rather, um, the, the overwhelming story for me has been of geopolitics trumping and eviscerating even uh, law enforcement cooperation on issues that are illegal in China and that should be of concern to the Chinese government. And I hope that we can find a way to get beyond that and that requires um, sustained uh, international engagement. And we are going to have to end things there. Thank you so much to you both for coming on. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks.
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, and the podcast is edited and produced, as always, by Jen Patiahau. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan. If you like the Lawfare Podcast, check out our other podcasts, Chatter, Rational Security, and The Aftermath, a narrative podcast series about January 6th. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.